Well, this morning you get three for the price of one. Uh, so I, I brought um, two other men who helped shape my journey. And that's Pastor Milton Hardnett, who has a uh, church in the Austin community and loves kids, has a great family, loves his wife, has uh, fathered five kids that are doing uh, unbelievable things for the kingdom, and uh, Ethereal, our newest intern. And we decided that wherever we go, Ethereal's going. And that's discipleship, right? Discipleship is... Not about the quality of time, it's about the quantity of time, where Jesus invited people to just come and journey with Him. You know, as we were singing, and especially that last song, I was thinking about, by the way, those songs, other than the first song, those songs were new to me, so thank you for introducing me to some, some new music. But, um, you know, the Bible passage says, whoever wants to, to be in Christ must walk as Jesus walked. That was that last song, right? The words that he says, where he goes, that we go. Father, holy is your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we, to the best of our ability, forgive others who sin against us. And Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So I've got a confession. You guys, come on. Come get some chairs and come on up here. Because at, at any time, you know, this service could be interrupted by the, by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And I know this guy over here is, is filled with it right now. So he might just take over the mic in a second. Um, you know, a couple confessions. Confession number one that uh, when I invited Joe to come and talk to our, our kids out in the Lawndale community, I didn't realize this was going to be a reciprocity thing. And uh, I'm not, I'm not a, a preacher at heart. This guy's this guy the preacher. But, um, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of messages in my day. I went to Wheaton College. Three times a week we had chapel. Um, I grew up in the church. Started preaching actually when I was the age of 16. I've been in church faithfully every Sunday since I was four years old. And I've heard message after message after message. After, and I can remember probably five or six of them. <laughs> so in, in, in my book, um, preaching is a bit overrated. But investing your lives in people is not. Uh, I was mentoring and discipling this young man by the name of Terrell. Terrell came to Christ when he was uh, probably 10, 10 years old in my, in my living room. And um, Terrell was excited because his dad was finally getting out of jail. And as he was communicating with his dad, his dad said, you know, Terrell, this Saturday I'm getting out. I'm going to come pick you up, and I'm going to take you to McDonald's and have a great day with you. And uh, so Terrell called me up Saturday morning and, and said, um, you know, my dad's picking me up today. I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to wait outside. I'm going to wait out on the curb. I said, man, let me pray for you, pray over your relationship with your dad. And uh, that was about 9 o'clock in the morning. About 11 o'clock in the morning, I get another call from Terrell. I said, Terrell, you know, how, how are things going with your dad? He said, no, my dad never came yet. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go back out on the curb. I'm going to wait for my dad. He said he's going to be here. I, I believe he's going to be here. Finally get a call from him at 1 o'clock. By this time, you can, you can hear his voice is kind of trembling. He's like, uh, my dad didn't come yet. I said, well, your dad said he's going to come. You know, just, just, just be patient. He's probably got a lot of things going on. About 4 o'clock, I get another call from Terrell. He's still sitting on the curb. By then, God hits me over the head and 
<laughs> you idiot, go pick up Terrell. You know, here he is sitting on the curb. So I get in my car and I, I, I go over there and, and I drive up and he's sitting on the curb, you know, just just upset, despondent, frustrated. And I pull up and, you know, he looks up. His face doesn't light up or anything. He just looks up. I said, anyone want to go to McDonald's? And, uh, you know, he hopped in the car. Um, and, and for me, it's been much more of a life on life. Uh, you know, as St. Francis of Assisi says, preach the gospel always, but if necessary, use words. And outside my building, I've got a huge statue of St. Francis of Assisi to remind me that it's not what you say, but it's how you live your life that really counts. Um, Joe, Joe talked to me this morning. He's out of town, as you know. And uh, for a brief moment, we thought about, thought about rescheduling. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, I'm not here for Joe. Uh, I'm here for you all. And I'm here to tell you that although... In our world, you would think that there's not a lot of opportunities out there because you hear about the financial tsunami and you hear that people are not hiring, they're laying off, and you hear about all the crisis that's happening. I'm here to tell you that the harvest is ready, but the workers are few. It just depends what you prioritize. If you prioritize the financial gain that comes to a career, you may look at the world today and say there's fewer opportunities But if you prioritize what it means to be salt and light and make a difference for the kingdom of God, then you realize that the harvest is ready, but the workers are few. Now, does anyone know the context of that quote, the harvest is ready, but the workers are few? See, this is is quiz time, too. I'm I'm not here just to preach. The context of those words, the harvest is ready, but the workers are few. Almost. He did say that to his disciples. But what was the context in which he said it to the disciples? John chapter 4. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. No? John chapter 4. Jesus went to Samaria, and there he met someone. Am I in the right passage, John 4? Okay. And there he met a woman who came to draw water. Do you remember the story? And, um, boy, I, I, this, this, this story right here is, 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 is the center of my theology. I mean, it really is. Because, you know, uh, I grew up in a, a, um, uh, a church that uh, counted conversions, you know. And this passage really challenged me. What if God doesn't count conversions, but he counts conversations, right? What if we became a church, a a group of people, that really on our scorecard, what we just counted were conversations, meaningful, deep, enriching conversations we had to people. What happens to those conversations is not our job, right? One plants and one waters, but God gives the increase, but what happens if our responsibility, our job description, was just to engage people in meaningful and deep conversations and then let the Spirit do what the Spirit's going to do? That's what Jesus did. You know, this woman came time and time again to draw water. It was just another menial task of her life, and there she met Jesus, right? And that's what we need to do. We need to engage people in the mundane in the ordinary aspects of their lives. Engage them and take them to a different place. Of course, through the power of God. 
Jesus exposes to her, like she didn't already know, but once again, Jesus exposes truth to us, and sometimes we don't want to face that truth, that she has had five husbands, and the one she's with is not her husband right now, right? And she's so moved to Jesus, she wants to go back and tell that she met the Messiah because this is the first time in Jesus' life he reveals to anyone. It's someone of a different race, it's someone of a different gender, and it's the first time he reveals to anyone that he's the Messiah. Up until this point, he was telling everybody when he did the miracles, don't tell anybody what happened to you. And now he boldly proclaims to her, I am the Messiah. And, of course, she runs away and she tells, and in that context that Jesus turns to his disciples and says, the harvest is plentiful, but the worker is few. In the same way, I would say, we are that woman. Simple, ordinary people that want to be used by God to proclaim that he is the Messiah. Um, I thought the most fitting introduction to this message and to me is just, He's a simple, ordinary guy trying to live out a simple plan, which is to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love his neighbor as himself. One of my mentors said that the true definition of evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where he got some bread. One beggar who found... The the point of evangelism is not for us to get the bread, It is for us to get the bread so that we can communicate that to others where they can find the bread. Okay, so the point of this walk is in in one of the songs that said, I only need Jesus. I only we only need Jesus. We need God to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. But Jesus is very quick to say in the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what I found? I need just Almost as much as I need Jesus is I need community, is I need the body, is I need my neighbor, right, to live out this calling that we have. So in the ministry that we have, I, I view the ministry as a fourfold. You know how Paul used a lot of race illustrations, right? I run the race. I don't want to be disqualified from the race. This one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, I strain towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal, which is in Christ Jesus. And um, for us, I look at it as a fourfold. I, I look at the race that we have as a relay race. It's a relay race. It's not just about running the race ourselves. It's about running the race knowing that at a certain time, you are going to be passing that baton. Right. So you're running a race. You're doing the best that you can. You're trying to be faithful. You're trying to be obedient. You're staying within the parameters of that race so that you're not disqualified and that you can pass the baton on to the next generation. Right. But then your concern is not only that you pass that baton, but your concern is that the person that you pass that baton on is equipped to run their portion of the race so that they, too, can pass the baton. So we tell our kids that. Their success is not our end. Their development is not our end. Their development in order to be a developer of others is not even our end. But their development in order to be a developers of others who will develop others is the end. Right? The fourth generation. So last night I was just jotting down some notes about the message today. And I thought, what if this Jesus style of discipleship and evangelism, this Jesus with the twelve, really was the model. Really was the model. I said, okay, so the first generation, 
you've got Jesus investing in the twelve, right? And let's say they are disciples with a commitment to disciple others. Second generation, you have twelve discipling each twelve, right? So it's a process of multiplication. So how many are discipled in the second generation? 144, okay? Now, I did some math. And I said, if this happens for one century, now you know there's been 2,000 years. But if this happened for one century, meaning there was 10 groups of people that each committed in a generation to disciple 12 people, okay? This is not even talking about after you disciple your 12, you've got to disciple another 12. It's like if you committed in 10 years to throw and invest your life into 12 disciples who also had that commitment to disciple 12 others. Now, this is exciting for this school, right? Because people look around and say, man, where are the numbers at? Right? Give me 12. Give me 12. So come on up here. This is how many people would be disciples of Jesus Christ in 100 years. Are you ready? If you don't believe me, do the math. that number 62 billion in 100 years now how many people are there in the world six billion right so if we were faithful to this jesus style of evangelism for a hundred years we would have evangelized the world discipled discipled the world not even evangelism this is just not to get people to pray the sinner's prayer but authentic, inviting people to share 10 years of your life, life-on-life discipleship, there would be 10 times over the number of people that are in the world today that would be disciples in 100 years. So I think Jesus was on to something, right? Okay. So I was reflecting on my time in college. And by the way, you can give me feedback like, you know, what do you mean about this? And I disagree with that, you know. I, I kind of like discussion-driven things. Um, I was reflecting about my time in college, knowing that some of you are kind of at that critical stage where you're developing, you know, kind of a, a passion for ministry and direction and things like that. And I went to Wheaton College um, to major in business. Um, up until the point that I went to college, uh, the only thing I really was successful at and good at was business, um, and that was selling women's cosmetics, of all things. Um, in high school, I got a job at Carson Peary Scott and uh, didn't know the first thing about Estee Lauder and, and uh, Clinique and all of these things, but I knew how to sell some cosmetics. So I began to sell cosmetics and was, within a year, probably one of the top salesmen at Carson Peary Scott. So when I went to college, I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a business major. And one of the first principles of economics and Economics 101 is, <clears throat> is the... Uh, principle called return on investment. Okay, I don't know if you've heard of that. Return on investment, ROI. It's what you made over what you paid times 100, and that determines your return on your, your investment. And the principle is simply this. Whatever you put into something, you want the highest return on investment. Okay? So you either can put less into it or you have to have a bigger bang for your buck, but everything comes down onto how do you maximize your investment for the greatest return? 
At the same time, I joined this group called the Wheaton Evangelistic Team. And we went down to Water Tower Place, um, right there on Chicago and, and uh, Michigan. And we'd set up a little stage, and we'd have some puppets, and we'd have some music, and we'd go out there and share kind of, not four spiritual laws, but kind of the same way you share four spiritual laws or steps of peace with God and engage people in conversation. Because once again, it's about conversation, not about conversion. All right? So I met this guy by the name of Robert, who is this homeless guy. And um, uh, for some reason... God just put him on my heart, um, probably because he was trying to manipulate me and talk about how the church hasn't done nothing for him. And if I would just get him a slice of pizza, I'd show that the church really did care about him. And, you know, I was green enough and dumb enough and naive enough to, to think like, man, the reputation of Jesus Christ is on my shoulders right now. I, I can't can't let this guy down. And not only did I get him a pizza and engage him in some conversation, I began to get really concerned about him to the point where I'd sneak food out of the cafeteria and take it downtown and give it to him, you know. And a couple of times I had him come out and stay with me for the weekend in my dorm room, and everyone was kind of, you know, curious as to who this six-foot-two African-American guy with this huge afro was staying in the room of Mike Trout, you know. And, and uh, as you know, Wheaton College is not, you know, very racially diverse. And uh, when my mom came to pick me up for fall break, I told my mom I'm bringing a friend home for fall break, and I took home Robert. And I was naive, naive to the point where I had bunk beds in my room, and I slept on the top bunk, and Robert slept on the bottom bunk. And it was just this thing that God was doing inside of me. And we spent those four days over fall break together. And when we went to leave, I noticed that some of my belongings were in his bags. And I noticed that some of my parents' belongings were in his bags. But I had just spent four days with him, and I chose not to say anything to him. So we got in the car, and I had arranged for this guy to have a job interview and a six-month residential place at Pacific Garden Mission. So I was excited that I wasn't going to have to take Robert back on the bench and drop him off, that I actually had a, 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 an opportunity to engage him and plug him in. And when we were to stop, like, going downtown, I'd fallen asleep in the front seat. My dad was driving, and Robert wasn't back. All of a sudden, I heard my dad's voice, Wake up, wake up, wake up. And I woke up. He said, Robert split. I said, What? Robert split. At a red light, Robert grabbed his bags, hopped out of the car, and took off with all of our family's belongings, my belongings. And I thought about my classes at school that talked about return on investments. What was my return on investments? This was not how I had it planned out. I had it planned out that Robert was going to have an interview. He was going to get a job. He was going to get a place to stay. I didn't expect that he was going to run out with our belongings as soon as I fell asleep. But even though it wasn't what I had planned, God had already done the work. It was what God had planned. And he began to do a deeper work about this area of how do we reach the poor and oppressed. At the same time, I fell in love with a passage of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. The reason I fell in love with the Sermon on the Mount was because of Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Now when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, it goes on to talk about what he taught. Right away, in Matthew 5, 1, we see the heart of Jesus. 
It says, when he saw the crowds, he did what? He went up on a mountainside. That fascinated me. What do you mean he went up on a mountainside? Aren't we called to, like, this is Jesus' opportunity to stand before the crowds and to testify about his father, to testify about what he's going to do, to perform a miracle. And it says, when he saw the crowds, he went on a mountainside. He retreated. He retreated from the masses, which really struck me as odd. Why would Jesus retreat from the masses? And then it says, his disciples came to him. His disciples came to him. I've seen this portrayed in movies and videos, and it has Jesus up on the mountainside with the scores of hundreds of people that are gathered around him teaching, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are they the more. I said, that's not how it is in Matthew 5, chapter 1. It's more like Jesus sitting on a rock with about, you know, a dozen people gathered around him, and he's about to ready to unlock the unbelievable profound mysteries of the kingdom, which begins with bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that are completely bankrupt that realize they have nothing apart from God. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Woe to us when we think we're somebody. You know, I said this to Pastor Milton the other day. I said, if people knew who I really was, who I really was, and sometimes who I really am, They wouldn't listen to me. They wouldn't follow me. They'd remove the ministry from me. They'd never ask me to come and speak. Because as much as we want to be all about Jesus, we ain't right. There's parts of us that ain't right. That deep in our core, there's still this wrestling that the Apostle Paul talks about between the flesh and the spirit. So anyway, I loved seeing the heart of Jesus. And later... Of course, after he talks about the Beatitudes, Jesus proclaims one of the most exciting passages in all of Scripture when he says, You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Right? And all of a sudden it dawned on me that what I had been learning at Wheaton College The best secular principles about return of investment are not secular principles. They're kingdom principles. This salt of the earth and this light of the world. And the question became in my mind, if I am the salt of the earth, salt meaning we're going to be rubbed into decaying meat as a preserving agent in areas of decay, where are the areas of decay that I see that I could be rubbed into if I'm the salt, right? If you are the light of the world, then your question leaving this building should be, Lord, where are the darkest areas? Right? Because we can spend our life, let's just look at it in terms of profits, if I worked for a company. I could spend my life helping a profitable company become just a little more profitable. And what have I done? I've helped increase their profit margin. But if I really want to do something in the business world, I take a company that's going down the tubes. I take a company that's struggling, and I invest in that company, and I restructure the company, and develop the company, and all of a sudden, Lee Iacocca, he's able to bring General Motors around, right? Where can you have the biggest return of investment? Where are the areas of the decaying darkness that God... So, at first, being a city boy... I had a hard time with suburban ministries. 
And so I thought about Willow Creek because I, I didn't get along with Willow Creek very good early on in my, my, my ministry. Um, and then it dawned on me, Bill Hybels, who started Willow Creek, saw Barrington, that rich suburb Barrington, as a place of greatest darkness. That although materially may have had things, spiritually they were dark. And he wanted to make a difference there. And it freed me up to love Bill Hybels because I saw him as seeing that this is the area of darkness where he could get planted into. Right? I saw Lyle Dorsett, one of the mentors of mine at Wheaton College, because I thought, why on earth would anyone who's a Christian stay at Wheaton College? Aren't we called to go outside of these college walls and make a difference? And he thought even that Christian institution called Wheaton College was the place of darkness where there's a lot of students that didn't know which direction that they were headed. And his goal was to help you realize you're a beggar showing another beggar where to get a piece of bread. For me, it was the poor and oppressed. And it really shaped my education at Wheaton because I'd go to school by day and I'd go downtown to the streets at night because the poor and oppressed became that area where I could shine, where I could make the biggest difference. So I joined prison ministry, and I did some things at Cook County Jail. I also went down to a a maximum security um, uh, death row prison down in Texas. Um, And we were there to uh, work with Bill Glass. Bill Glass is a group that follows up a lot of the crusades that come in there, Um, Colson and others that go in there and preach the gospel and people come to Christ. And Bill Glass will come in with discipleship materials and begin to see which of those were authentic and serious and wanting to grow in their faith. And he'd get them plugged in. So they gave us our, our, our orientation. And the warden came in and began to tell us about what the rules were, what you can do, what you can't do, what you can say, what you can't say. And, of course, I, this is my first time in a maximum security prison. My eyes were like saucers. I was like, okay, t- you know, I want to know exactly what the parameters are. And at the end of his speech he said, and never... Never reach your hand in that cell. Because what they will do is they will take that hand and they will break it against the bars. Okay? He was painting a very dark picture about the place that we were about ready to enter. So they paired us up, and I had an older guy, and we went over to cell block C up on the third level, and he said, why don't you start on this side, Mike, start at the first cell, and I'm going to go all the way to the last cell, and we're going to meet in between and we'll go to the next you know next row because there's a lot of people in here a lot of inmates so i said great so i walked up to my first cell i said hey he said hey stood in the back i said how you doing he said all right and uh i said hey i'm I'm just here to, to to come and talk to you are you interested he's like yeah sure he started walking towards me it stopped about i don't know 10 feet away and uh, I don't know what it was. Something was grabbing my hand, you know. Something was grabbing my hand, and I heard the words of the warden. <laughs> but something was grabbing my hand saying, stick it in there. Stick it in there, right? And all I could think of the words saying, he's going to snap it off. He's going to snap it off. And sure enough, I just stuck my hand in there, and he came, walked forward and shook my hand. And... Um, led to an unbelievable conversation. Matter of fact, the guy did every single cell all the way and met me at cell number one because we had talked the whole time. And, uh, and then I got involved with Emmaus Ministries. I don't know if you heard of Emmaus, but they're in the uptown community here in Chicago and they work with men in prostitution. Um, E-M-M-A-U-S. Similar to the road to Emmaus. You know, the Bible talks about the road to Emmaus and 
It was right after the resurrection. There's two kind of disciples walking along this road, and Jesus comes to join them, but they don't recognize Jesus. And they just begin to talk as they walk. And, and uh, Jesus is saying, you know, wh- what's going on? What's all this commotion about? And they're like, man, are you the only idiot around? You don't realize what happened? Jesus, man, they don't know what happened to the body. And they talk about this, this confusion that they're going through. And Jesus begins to enlighten them about all the prophets, that this is, this is what was foretold by all the prophets. And they were so moved by him that they're like, man, can you come and just stay with us for a little bit? Can you be a part of us for a little bit? He's like, all right, okay, come on, I'll, I'll, I'll hang with you. They still had no clue who this guy was. And they walked into the house, and Jesus sat down at the table, and there was something about the way he took the bread and he broke it. And when he took that bread and he broke it around the table of fellowship, their eyes were open and saw that it was Jesus. And as soon as they saw it was Jesus, he had disappeared from their midst. You know? And so the road, to the, the Emmaus Ministries that I joined was for men in prostitution, most of them are drug addicts, and most of their prostitution takes place in the gay community. So here I was going to school at Wheaton College by day and spending from about 10 o'clock at night till 4 o'clock in the morning on the streets of Chicago ministering in the gay community to male prostitutes. And the whole notion was that you walk alongside of these people like the road to Emmaus, beginning to teach them and invest in them and engage them. And, of course, the main issue always came back to sexuality, to homosexuality, to what I thought about sexuality. What does Jesus say about homosexuality? And I kept saying to them, I don't even want to engage you on that. I want to know, what do you think of Jesus? To me, ideologically, I could care less where they stood on sexuality. I don't care. You're gay. You're straight. That's not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is what do you do with this man named Jesus? Right? And Jesus will reveal and change. And we have to, we can't usurp the role of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's job to convict. And it's our job to love. Right. So I was just talking in the van coming out here about um, uh, Notre Dame did, did not want or does not want President Barack Obama to come and speak at their school because of his stance on abortion, of his stance on contraception, the stance on a lot of things opposes the Catholic Church's stand on that. And my thing is, we have to be always inviting people that ideologically are different than us to be around us. Because we're salt, right? And it's, we can't close the door and say, you don't represent our values. You don't represent our views. You don't represent the word. No, the point is we are to be rubbed into those areas of decay, right? So we have to get beyond ideologically what we think and once again chalk up our conversations, our conversations, our conversations. And then I began interested in the homelessness and poverty, not only in the city but also in the suburbs, So one of my spring breaks I spent doing PADS, which is Public Action for Decent Shelter, out in the richest county in Illinois, DuPage County. I realized I have a whole group of homeless people that go from church to church as part of this PADS program out in DuPage County. And God began to cultivate in me this love for the poor and oppressed. So after I married my wife, we, we got married the day after we finished school, we decided the place that God wanted us was wherever we thought was the darkest place. And uh, we, told, we were told one of them, one of the darkest places, was this neighborhood called North Lawndale. It is violent. 
It is gang infested. There are guns. There are drugs. And at that point, the Chicago Tribune had called North Lawndale the home of the permanent underclass. The home of the permanent underclass. In other words, this is a community beyond a hope. This is a community beyond, they're not going to make it. And I thought, man, talk about return of investment. If the expectations are that nothing good is going to come from the hood, that's where I want to be, right? Well, the truth is, the truth is that's where I fit in, too. Because <laughs> I was a bit of a scoundrel myself, and still am, and I fit in there. And although I stick out like a white thumb, um, I fit in there. So it's been a good fit. So my wife and I have been living and serving in Lawndale for 17 years of our 17 and a half year marriage. It's the only home that we've ever had together. I don't have any comparison problems because I don't know where else to live anyway. And we love it. We love living there. So I prepared a couple materials. Is, this, is, this, is any of this resonating with you? Okay. Um, take a look at this right here. How to create a ghetto. Okay. Um, I'm looking at the second column, about the third paragraph down, where it says it's not hard to create a ghetto. Do you see that? Could someone in the back read that paragraph? Second column, third paragraph down. It's not hard to create a ghetto. Okay, thank you. How do you create a ghetto? How do you create a ghetto? You remove the neighbors of influence. You remove the people with leadership. You remove the excellent students. You close down the stores. And all of a sudden what you have left is a ghetto. Right? But yet God has called us to be salt and light. These are the very places that God is calling us. It's like this. <clears throat> Even biblically, there's that passage where Jesus is basically going to remove the demons from this person. And the problem that Jesus is facing is if you just remove the demons and you don't replace it with something good... What's going to happen? The demons are going to search for all their buddies, and they're going to do what? Go right back in, right? They're going to come back as legion. And that's exactly what's happened. We call them ghettos. When the good has been removed, then all the bad, the negative influences, Satan has his way with that neighborhood, and he's able to mobilize his forces to move back in because there's nothing good, there's no light, there's no salt that's being rubbed in. So we ended up in North Lawndale. Poverty of resources and poverty of relationships. So today's passage that we're looking at is, if you're looking at stack, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And it says the following thing. 
Living the gospel Las Vegas style. Las Vegas style. Um, let me read this first passage, and then I want to share why we need to live the, live the gospel Las Vegas style. Kind of sounds sacrilegious. By the way, Joe will be here to correct any theology I have wrong. Right, Joe? Um, 2 Corinthians 4, from the message, says this. Since God has so generously let us in on what he is doing, we're not about to throw up our hands and walk off the job just because we run into occasional hard times. We refuse to wear masks and play games. We're authentic, right? (laughs) We don't maneuver or manipulate behind the scenes, and we don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. Rather, we keep everything we do and say out in the open, the whole truth on display, so that those who want to can see and judge for themselves in the presence of God. God has generously let us in. Not because of our worth or our merit or our own ideology or theology or what we bring to the table. He just decided to generously include us in what he's doing. All we are is bearing witness to what he's doing. Things that are happening in North Lawndale, it's not because of Mike Trout. Mike Trout is there to bear witness to those outside the community that God is doing something in Lawndale. I'm there to bear witness to the white community. I'm there to bear witness to the black community, the suburban community, that God is alive and doing things in Lawndale. Right? He has generously let us in. And when you realize that he let us in, then you don't have to operate on a pretense that you are what you really are not. We are offering bearers. We bring our plate with, you know, it's like the boy with the the fishes and the loaves. And we say, God, if you want to do a miracle, if you want to feed 5,000 with my crummy little fish and my crummy little bread, all be it for me to stand in your way, do your thing. But I'm willing to bring it. As meager as it is, I'm willing to bring it and watch God do a mighty work with it. So I was working late one night at Wyman, and uh, I was raised in a home with a lot of chaos and confusion. And uh, the TV was always going, and the radio was always going, and it cursed me. I I need to have noise in the back. I don't know if anyone in here is like that. I cannot study in a library. I cannot study where it's completely quiet. I gotta go to Starb. I gotta go someplace where, if nothing else, I hear other conversations or some noise in the background. You know, I study at the cafeteria. That's where I study. So, in the office late at night, I'll make me have the TV on, have the radio on, and it's nothing but just noise in the background. But this one particular night, there was a voice that I heard on there, and it caught my attention. I looked up. It was Alan Thicke. Now, I grew up during the age where I watched Growing Pains. I don't know if anyone here in here watched Growing Pains on TV. And Alan Thicke was one of the stars of that show. And I looked up, and my first thought was, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Here was this guy that had this regular sitcom. It was one of the best sitcoms on TV. And now he's standing there promoting an infomercial for a timeshare in Las Vegas called Tahiti Village. Okay, it's not even on the strip. It's off the strip. And, you know, he's talking about all these things. And I'm kind of laughing. What is this guy doing promoting this timeshare? And I know about timeshares and I've gone to some of the presentations. And then he said, and now I'm about ready to make you an offer you can't refuse. Well, I love good sales. I love good deals. So he had my attention. 
He said, we will bring you down to Las Vegas. We will put you up at one of the premier resorts on the Strip. We will give you money to gamble with. We will send you to shows. All this is yours for free if you go through a 90-minute presentation about Tahiti Village. I said, man, I've always wanted to go to Las Vegas. And I could do it on a preacher's salary. So I said, this is it. So I called. I didn't even check with my wife. I just called up and I said, sign us up. We want to come to Las Vegas and we want to see Tahiti Village. We're so interested in Tahiti Village, right? So we use frequent flyer miles. We go out to Las Vegas. We go through the timeshare presentation. And, of course, Las Vegas is every, you know, all the the hedonism and opulence of man, right, all put out there for, for the visibility of others. And my wife and I, we're, we're having fun with it. We're going to all the different resorts to see what's, you know, great at all the resorts. We finally make it one, one morning. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning because they don't sleep in Las Vegas. We finally made it to the Wynn Resort and Casino. And we went to a show, and we're walking through the casino there at the Wynn. And, I mean, we got – we don't have – I, I have $20 in my pocket. I mean, hardly any money to even rub together. And we walk this guy who's obviously inebriated. He's got this chick on his arm. Walk up to the roulette table, and he slaps down a chip on number 12. And he said, number 12. And he slaps down a chip. And the, uh, the guy who's spinning the ball said, whoa, that's, that's a $100 chip on number 12. You know, because in roulette, they put like dollars, dollar, 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 you know, because it's very rare that your number is going to hit. Because it's 36 to 1 odds. And he said, let it roll. Just like that. Very, very dramatic. Let it roll. And I'm interested. So now I'm, I'm over at the table watching it. And the guy takes the ball and he spins it around. And the ball's spinning, spinning, spinning. Bump, 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 and it sticks. And it hits number 12. <laughs> 36 to 1. And, um, uh, you know, he was, he, I don't even know if he realized how much money he had won, but he's like, yeah, I won. And he's, you know, putting all the chips in his pocket and ready to walk away. And for that moment, I reached in and pulled my $20 bill out, you know. I started getting excited. I realized, I, I don't have $20 to lose, you know. I put that $20 back in that pocket, you know. And I thought, wouldn't that be amazing if we had, you know, what what happens if in our lives we realized that any single risk or gamble or thing that we did, if Jesus Christ covered any of the debts that we may occur. In other words, we were free to get as risky and as bold as we wanted to go, knowing that any time we lost, we were actually gambling with the house's money. That it all belonged to Jesus in the first place. Now, I'm not really talking about gambling now. You know, Just an illustration. I'm talking about taking risks. I'm talking about being adventurous. I'm talking about in an age, because of this economic tsunami, everybody is looking to protect what little they have. What happens if the church actually got excited and risky and dangerous in the way that it invested? And it began to sow liberally and it began to say, number 12, where's the number 12? Here's what I would love. I would love if each of us had three or four people that were almost like the roulette table. Now, I'm going to take you to three stages in the casino, okay? The first one is roulette. The roulette game reminds me of this. There are always those people in our lives who are like the number 12s. We would say in our right mind, this investment ain't going to pay off at all. 
This ain't going to hit. This is 36 to 1 odds. This does not make sense to put any chips into this person. They failed me in the past. They're going to fail me in the future. They're a lost cause. It's a sunk cost. They're not worth our investment. We want to see 50, 100, whatever fold we want to return on the ministry. They're not worth it. And God says, hey, whose money are you gambling with? It's my money. The house is money. Risk it. Stick it on number 12, and let's see what happens. Antonio's a guy on our staff, and I've been working with this kid since sixth grade. Now he's in college. He's like junior in college at Northeastern Illinois University. Fabulous staff guy. has a gigantic heart in him. And he's got an older cousin, probably a year or two older than him, who um, he became concerned with because this guy, Charlie, was just sitting on the couch drinking 40 ounces all throughout the day. It's his cousin. Now, they came from the same community, from the same family, went to similar schools. Antonio's on my staff, growing in his faith, investing in the next generation, and Charlie is on the couch drinking 40 ounces. So what does Antonio do? He's got a heart for Charlie. And he comes to me and says, Mike, I don't know what we can do, but I'm, I'm at the last straw with Charlie. I don't know what to do. And for some reason, it doesn't make any sense. He hasn't warranted it. He's not worthy of it. I said, well, let's bring him on staff. Let's make him our latest intern, okay? I said, Antonio, how much would it cost to buy Charlie, to buy him? I, mean, I just want to flat out say, here's money. You're going to get paid this every week. You've got to be here every day. I would just want to buy this kid to get his butt off the couch and to put down the beer bottle. How much would it cost to buy him? He said, 50 bucks a week. I said, for the whole week? He said, for the whole week. I said, call him up. So we offered to buy Charlie. Charlie, I'm going to give you 50 bucks a week. You're going to be our, our newest intern. Every day you're going to have to come here. Every day you're going to have to work out for us. So sure enough, about a month and a half into it, this guy is just glowing. He's doing work around the center. He's thriving. I mean, we saw the power of God at work in his life. And the very next week he gave it all up. The very next week he gave it all up. And I almost did. My, my, my message today was almost the ten reasons why you should not disciple. Because I've invested to some kids five years, six years, seven years. And at the end, they slam their door in my face. I've invested in people, helping them develop stability, stability, stability. And they threw it all away for some drugs again. You know, I've helped families uh, go from apartment to apartment, getting new refrigerators, new stoves, new things. And the ones I have are just as roach-infested and as dirty as the ones that they had the fourth time before I helped them move. Right? But there needs to be people in our lives that were playing with the house's money. Even though 35 times it may not hit their number, when it does hit, you know that it's from God. Look at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says this. Remember, our message is not about what ourselves we're proclaiming Jesus Christ, the master. All we are are messengers. We are errand runners from Jesus for you. It started when God said, light up the darkness and our lives filled up with light. As we saw and understood God in the face of Christ, all bright and beautiful. But then it says this. But if you only look at us, you might not what you might well miss the brightness. 
Meaning even though our lives filled up with light, there's still some areas, there's still some issues that they're not going to see that brightness. But we carry this presage message around in the unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. As it is, there's not much chance of that. You know for yourselves that we were not much to look at. We've been surrounded and battered by troubles, but we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do, but we know that God knows what to do. We've been spiritually terrorized, but God hasn't left our side. We've been thrown down, but we haven't been broken. What they did to Jesus, they will do to us. Trial and torture and mockery and murder. What Jesus did among them, he does in us. He lives. Our lives are at constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. While we're going through the worst, you're getting in on the best. We're not keeping this quiet, not on your life. Just like the psalmist who wrote, I believed it, so I said it. We say that we believe. And what we believe is that the one who raised up the master, Jesus, will just as certainly raise us up with you, alive. Every detail works to your advantage and to God's glory. More and more grace, more and more people, more and more praise. So, that in turn didn't work out. I thought of another young man. This young man was recently married in our program. Only been married about a year. And he went to college and he dropped out of college because things didn't work out for him. And he was kind of depressed. He was discouraged. Very depressed, very discouraged. And it's somewhat emasculated as a man because, you know, when you're married, you want to provide for your wife. You want to get an apartment. They couldn't afford an apartment. They were living with her mom. And he was playing video games all day. You could just tell a spirit of depression was on this young man. And I thought, I'm not playing with my chips. I'm playing with God's chips. And because I put it all on number 12 and it didn't work out, what if I put it all on number 13? Maybe it'll work out. So I turned to him and I said, hey, you want to come and be our newest intern? It didn't work out with Charlie. Maybe it'll work out with you. Three months later, the kid is doing unbelievable. He's thriving. He helped lead a trip to Memphis. He's investing in the next generation. He's hanging out with us. He's a part of us. That's him right there. Ethereal. Ethereal. Who can you think of that you think it is just not worth investing another dime in this person's life? We should each have three or four people around us like that that we continue to invest in because we're investing with God's money. Okay? That's the roulette table. I'm going to take you to two other sections. Next, I'm going to take you to the slots. Right? I'm going to take you to the slots. As soon as I get to my right place here. Um, Okay. The slots. Now, if you ever walked into a casino and you go over to the slots, if you pull that lever and it comes up and nothing, nothing, nothing. There's no lights, no bells, no nothing, right? But when you pull that slot and it comes up, cherry, 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 ding, 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 the bells go off, the whistles go off, the chips start to fall, right? And it's a very kind of addictive environment to be in, right? That you hear the lights, you hear the bells, and you're thinking at every pull, I'm going to win, I'm going to win. And of course, you know, Las Vegas was built on people that thought that they were going to win, right? So the slots. 
So I got thinking about the slots and I said, what if we had it all wrong? What if every time we pulled the lever to the slots, even though physically in the natural world there was no bells, there was no whistles, but every time we pulled that handle in the name of Jesus, lights and bells were going off in the heavenlies. And we didn't see it. We couldn't hear it. But every time we pull that lever, just by the nature of being willing to pull the lever, lights and bells are going off in the heavenly. Ding, 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 ding. Every time you pull it, it's a win. It's just by the nature of pulling the lever. What does the scripture says that we're looking at? The last passage, it says this. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside... It often looks like things are falling apart on us. On the inside where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times. The lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see are here today and gone tomorrow, but the things we can't see now will last forever, right? Paul says it this way, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Amen? So, when I first moved to Lawndale, there was a man who hooked up with me. His name was John Spikner. The reason I am in youth ministry today is because of a man by the name of John Spikner. I just want to say his name. John Spikner. John Spikner was in his 70s. He was a single man who had never been married. In fact, he lived celibate his whole life. He was thin and frail. Because of his arthritis, his hand was crooked You could barely shake hands with him because of the crooked nature of his hand. He drove a 15-year-old brown station wagon. He wore simple clothes. And although they probably wouldn't allow this in schools today, every morning he would go over to the school by the name of Henson School and he would walk the playground and hug kids. That's all he did every day. Walk the playground and hug kids. So I met him. And he gave me a love for those kids on the playground. He said, Mike, come with me. I want to show you what I do. I want to show you my church. I want to show you my parish. And he took me over to Henson School, and we began together to walk the playground and to hug kids. I mean, it sounds kind of creepy, right? (laughs) This old 70-year-old crotchety old guy with a beat-up car and funny-looking clothes going around hugging little kids on the playground. I mean, it should send off some warning signs. But this kid was, I mean, this this guy was genuine and sincere. And he gave me a love for these kids. John Spikner introduced me to an eight-year-old boy by the name of Willie. And I fell in love with Willie, and I fell in love with youth ministry. Willie came to live with my wife and I, and we adopted him and his two brothers. He lived with us for 16 years. We put him through college at Olivet Nazarene University. Willie had a love for the community and a love for education. Matter of fact, he was the first in the school's 100-year history, he was the first African-American male to get a degree in elementary education. 
the first one in a hundred years. And after he graduated from school, Willie knew what he was going to do. He was going to return to North Lawndale to become a fifth grade teacher in the community. That's what he's doing to this day. He's now called Mr. Chapman. And in fact, Pastor Milton here runs a program where Willie teaches fifth grade. So now we're working side by side to reach the next generation, taking that baton and reaching the next generation. But what I want to say is, well, let me, let me add one more part to the story. Henson School, we've continued our relationship with Henson School that John Spike introduced us with. And every Tuesday morning at 7.30, I have a Bible study at that public school. I would say 75% of the kids in our program come from that school. We actually have a staff member that we hired, we've hired, and have placed in that school in room 308 to be an on-site chaplain for that school. To love and to reach those kids in the name of Jesus Christ. John Spikner saw none of it. Because two years later after I met him and he gave me this love for youth, John Spikner went home to be with his Lord. What I want to say is, John Spikner over all those years pulled that lever, pulled that lever. There were no bells, there was no whistles, no fruit he could point to, nothing to celebrate. No one was applauding him, no one was patting him on his back. And I just wonder, what was his home going like in heaven? The rejoicing that takes place in heaven. Do you know that probably 90% of all the fruit that we, root, that we reap was because of seeds that John Spikner planted some 15 years ago? In me, in the ministry, in the school, he cultivated the ground so that every single seed that we plant has greater fruitfulness. And it was his steadfastness of cultivating that. Your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Finally, I'll take you to one other place. Are you all with me? Any questions? Oh, it's a wonderful ride, isn't it? You know, and the fact is that God just invites us. That's the amazing thing. He invites us. I just feel, I mean, I was, I was with a funder the other day, and this funder is very wealthy. Matter of fact, he just gave the organization $100,000. I mean, if you can just give the organization $100,000, how much money do you got? And he turned to me, we had lunch, and we were walking down the street. He said, man, you walk around here like you're rich. I said, dude, I'm the richest man that ever lived. You know, the unbelievable thing of God inviting us on his journey, it's wealth beyond comparison, right? Here he is, so wealthy, talking to me. You think you're rich. I know I'm rich. So the last place I'm going to take you is to the poker room. Now, I, I have to confess, I'm, I'm a little bit of a poker addict. I, you know, late at night, you might find me turning on ESPN to watch the 2008 World Series of Poker, okay? And the crazy thing is, I saw the whole World Series of Poker, and if I'm flipping the channels and it's on TV, guess what I'm watching? The World Series of Poker, right? I already know who's going to win, but I'm still watching the World Series. That's the kind of addict that I am when it comes to poker, right? Uh, there's something about... When it comes to that point in time and you got the cards, and of course the object of poker is not to let anyone know what you're dealing with, which is the opposite of 2 Corinthians 4, right? Because it's talking about we can be authentic because God has cut us in. We don't need to have masks. We don't need to, but anyway, poker is all about hiding your hand and disguise. Isn't that what the people in our community are dealing with? 
Their, their sole objective, the kids that we're discipling, their sole objective is to let nobody know what's in their hand, to completely hide what they've been dealt with in life, and to bluff their way through life like they got something better than they really got. Okay? Um, anyway, I love that moment when someone takes all their chips and they push it and they go, I'm all in. Right? And someone else has to make a decision. Do I go all in? And they go all in. And then one turn of the card decides who lives and who doesn't. That all in moment. I just think, man, I, I, I want to live my life like that where I'm all in. Just continually taking risks. And if, if, if we're playing with the house's money, the great thing is he'll renew our pot. You know, We're free to take those risks of going all in. And have the door slammed on us. And have everything that we think fall apart and it not work out. And you know, those are the times that, that, I don't know, God seems to shine the brightest in my life or through the failures. So, okay, anyway, with poker. Everyone has been dealt a, a, a hand of cards. Everyone in here has been dealt a hand of cards. So what I'm going to ask you to do is just to reflect a little bit with me on the kind of cards you've been dealt. All right? So, oh, let's take a look at diamonds. Diamond... I'm just using to represent worth, how much you're worth, okay? We've all been told different things to us by our parents, by our neighborhoods, by our communities, how much we're worth. I chose a nine for me. A nine means that, by and large, my family communicated that I had worth. It's not a two, right? The two is the worst. It's not a king or an ace because that that would be like they really communicated my worth, but... I chose a nine because they let me know I was worth something, but the worth that I had seemed to be always came with strings, strings attached, you know, that my worth was based on how I performed and how I obeyed and what I did that was right. And in some ways I got the message, I believe, growing up, that if I didn't do what was right, then I was worth less. So there, it was conditional. Well, what, what, what would you have been given on the worth from your parents or from your families or your communities? And then I think about the young men that I'm discipling and praying for and serving. What were they communicated growing up about their worth? But everyone has been given a card based on your worth, and that's part of your hand. Power. The spades. If anyone has played spades, you know, you realize that spade is the power card. If someone else is playing hearts and you don't have any hearts, you can throw that spade down and trump it. It's a power card. And my parents let me know that I had power. I had power to affect my future, you know, that I could make a difference. I think they did a pretty good job with that. Um, clubs. Clubs deals with emotions, right? I chose clubs because... I wanted to club a few people growing up. <laughs> emotions. This is the greatest curse that, that was handed down to me, was in the area of emotions, by my father. You know, he had a um, pretty pretty horrible anger. And, uh, you know, his dad was even worse. So he probably thought he was improving. Because my grandpa, man, he would knock my dad's head off. And so, you know, the fact that, you know, my dad would knock half my head off. <laughs> Man, he was doing good, right? But I grew up with this intense anger problem where the two emotions that I had is either I was happy or I was angry. Those were the only two emotions that I had growing up. I was happy or I was angry. I didn't, 
really know about how to how to deal with the fear. Really know how to deal with sadness. I didn't know how to deal with anxiety. I didn't know how to deal with empathy, compassion, all those things. It was just I was happy or I was angry. So this is the card that I had to play my life with, this two of clubs. And love. Can you go get the other four cards and put them around your neck? And the heart, of course, represents love, right? In spite of all this, my parents let me know that I was loved. I, I, I picked a king, you know, meaning that they did communicate their love for me. So my life, I've been, it's not the worst of all hands, amen? But it's not the best of all hands. So I've tried to play as best as I could my life with the hands that I've been dealt with. Not even realizing that at any time in God's poker room, He gives you the ability to trade in your cards. Trade in your cards. He's got this thing called atonement. Can you all say atonement? Atonement. He's got these A's called atonement. Right? And at any time... We can trade it in. And all it takes is someone who got a little atonement in their life to say, hey, let me show you where you can get some atonement and I'll trade you those cards. And so Ethereal, of course, he met Jesus. He knows about God's atonement. He says, guess what? I have an atonement card in the area of worth or value. The Lord says that he created you. He knitted you together while you were in your mother's womb, that you are... Now give me my card. Now you're giving me this card, right? I, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen? He's giving me this card. You can trade it in for the Ace of Diamonds, the Atonement. Then he takes the Spade card. And he gives me this, the personal power. He says that his strength is made perfect in your weakness, Mike. The greater is he that is in you now than he that is in the world. That you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You don't have to have a jack of ace. I'll trade you an atonement, ace of spades. Then he comes with the clubs, my lowest card. He says, Mike, even though you've been given this anger, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. For in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And even though you may have a king of hearts, I can trumpet with my ace of hearts. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Romans 8, nothing. Nothing can separate you from my love. And he allowed me to trade in my cards. Now what hand am I playing? Right? Now what hand am I playing? I'm playing his hand. Now, if we caught this understanding about God's poker room, it would eliminate gossip. It would eliminate backbiting. Because all we're doing is we're reflecting on the fact that some people have been given crappy cards. It's not their fault. They have just been given crappy cards. And because we knew where to trade our cards into, our obsession becomes, let me show you how you can trade in that card. Hurt people hurt people. So if they're hurting you, it's because they themselves are hurt. They've got some bad cards, but I can show you who can give you an ace. Right? Our job becomes no condemnation, but just loving. How can we love them and introduce them to Christ? So for 11 months, oops, I jumped ahead of myself. Two years ago, 
our staff began investing in a young man by the name of Pepe. He was a seventh grade student from Henson School, okay, the playground there at Henson School. And he was particularly drawn to our football team. He loved playing in our football league. Pepe loved to come to the center, but there was one thing that Pepe loved more than coming to the center. He loved what his friends thought of him. Okay, So one day, <clears throat> there were some delinquents that he called his friends that decided that they were going to break into the Y-Men Center. And although our staff had invested and loved and embraced this young man by the name of Pepe, he teamed up with five other of his guys, and they broke into the Wyman Center. And they broke into my office. They stole computers and cameras and shoes and sports equipment and anything they could get their hands on. And they took some things and began to vandalize our bus outside, breaking the windshield and breaking the windows of the bus. And someone must have yelled at them because all of a sudden they all fled off. So I got the call that our stuff had been broken into and vandalized. So I went over there and I began to interview people in the neighborhood about what they saw. And sure enough, we identified all six of the people within a couple of days who were involved in the break-in. Five of the six guys had been to our program, the Wyman program. And what hurt the most was Pepe. That he betrayed us like that. He hurt us like that. For 11 months... Pepe never set foot again in the Wyman Center. He knew in our community, disrespect like that could cost you your life. Now, we're a Christian ministry. It's not going to cost him his life. But people know, street justice-wise, if you do that to somebody, they have a right to do something back to you. So for 11 months, he never saw us again. What a waste. What a waste. What a bust. So Pepe's life began to spin out of control with these guys that he ran with. He began smoking pot regularly, selling pot on the side to keep some cash flowing. Pepe became a lost cause. So a couple months ago, I started this Bible study over at Henson School at 7.30 in the morning. I started it because there's four kids that I wanted to reach. They're all good soil. You know, and I wanted to I wanted to put some more chips. I wanted to put some more investment in these kids. So there's four kids there that I wanted to be part of this Bible study. So on the first day of the Bible study, four kids were there, but it wasn't one of the four that I thought. It was a kid who threatened our organization on the computer the week previously. He read this, wrote this horrible threat against our organization on the computer. Kid who threw a rock at one of our vans and busted the light out. Another kid that did something else to one of our staff members, and then this new kid that I've never, I've never met before. I'm like, God, I did not sign up for these four. I signed up for a different four. But sure enough, it was Denario and Tori and DeVale and this new kid. And what we've seen is just these kids, especially Denario, grow immensely because of this. But anyway, what you expect and what you anticipate is not always what God wants. So we began this Bible study with them and had a great time, and I was surprised. And matter of fact, I had to preach that next Sunday, and I, my message was on when God's plan is not your plan and how God called me to love these kids, even though they had all offended the organization previous to that. How can I now invest in them and love them even though they hurt us? The very next week, Pepe walks into the Bible study. He walks in very sheepishly. Pepe, come on over and sit down. Pepe sits down. 
I said, I'm going to go on with the Bible study, but Pepe, you know something, man. You hurt us deeply. You offended us deeply. You betrayed us deeply. And I need you to just acknowledge that first. And he put his head down. He said, I blew it, Mike. I know what I did was wrong. I said, Pepe, I said, you know what our Bible study is about today? He looked up. He said, what? I said, forgiveness. I said, forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's not my chips. It's not my pot. I'm free to forgive. Walk all over us. Disrespect us. I'm free to forgive. It all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. Roulette. God wants us to take some risks and make some investments in people that we don't think would have a chance in the universe. And even though they're lost causes to us, they're not lost causes to God. And if we invest in them and God does something, He takes all the credits. Right? Those are wonderful people that we can just be liberal to invest in and God gets all the glory. Slots. Slots remind us that we don't have to lose heart in being faithful to what we know God has already called us to do. We can pull that lever time and time again with no bells, no whistles, to be steadfast, knowing that in the heavenlies God will do what God is going to do. We can be like John Spikner, just doing it faithfully, not even knowing what the harvest is down the road. The poker room, God invites us to trade in our crap cards. It is a toning aces. And then he gives us the privilege of helping others do the same. We are free to love. We are free to invest. And what happens when it doesn't work out the way we expect it to? We continue on because it's not our money. It all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. So at this, I'm going to invite Pastor Milton. If you want to share any words, we have about 15 minutes. Or if there's any questions or ethereal, if you want to say anything, are you interested in saying anything? Come on up. I'll make it quick, you know, we run on time. But, um, yeah, you know, I started going to Wyman when I was at least around like seventh grade, you know, and I, I came from a family that really wasn't like well connected or loving and so it was like me my mom my grandma off and on because you know family love it had a lot of tension a lot of people didn't like each other and stuff like that and like so basically like I kind of grew up alone and I was trying to make my own way do things and stuff like that I got in the Wyman program, my life got a little bit better, you know. And I was but I still struggle with my mom being on drugs and alcohol. And so, you know, I didn't wanna like do nothing negative because of what I was going through. So I began to go and follow the Wyman program and like during the day that made my life better, but like after the program was over, I know what I had to go back to. Luckily, like, 
I stayed focused and I stayed strong during that whole process of what I was going through. And then, like, like the more I got older, the more, like, kind of like a little bit less, I began to stray away from the program. And so, uh, like, I, I started, like, when I, well, when I got in my relationship with my wife, when we was just dating, you know, I was like, man, I need a job, I need a job. You know, I want to take out and provide. So I kind of cut away from the program for a year and a half, I believe, or two years. And, like, I had jobs, then I lost them. And, you know, got depressed, sitting around the house doing nothing, waking up, sleeping most of the day because I didn't want to wake up to reality. I just wanted to stay asleep, like, forever, basically, because I knew I wasn't doing anything with my life. You know, and uh, my wife talked to Mike, and, like, I've been going for so long from the program, I didn't know how to come to him and say, hey, I want to get back. And so I was like, you know, i just do whatever, day by day, you know. And then um, I finally came to him, and he offered the internship. And, you know, he told me, like, hey, you know, it's not, you know, It'll be a paid internship, but you won't be getting paid a lot. I said, okay. He said, $70 a week. I said, fine. He said, come in Monday, Tuesday, and Thursdays. I said, better yet, I'll take all the days to work. So ever since then, I've been active more, you know. I'm, I'm more developing as a leader, you know, and uh Basically, like, I'm ex I'm still, no matter what, I'm still accepted whether I go and come back, you know, leave for years and time and come back. Everybody still accepted me. And that's what I was afraid of, that they wouldn't. But they did, and, like, I'm glad I'm back in and I'm on the right path. And, like, you know, whatever comes out of this internship, you know, for the better. That's all I see, you know. Even if I wasn't being paid, I would still do it. So, you know, Wyoming program has made me, like, develop more and grow more. So that's why, like, I'm sticking with it, and I'm always there. What's happening in Ethereum's life is exciting, but the real exciting thing to me is to see the gifts emerge in this young man that he's gifted in working with other kids. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that his gifts were working with other kids. So I'm excited to see his excitement and his purpose, but I'm much more excited when I go on a trip and I say, Ethereal, I'm delegating this responsibility with the kids to you and to watch this young man step up and now investing in the other students. Because that's that baton that we're talking about. My job is not just to hand the baton to Ethereal so he gets a bigger slice of the pie. My job is to hand him a baton so that he realizes his responsibility in running around there and handing it to the next generation. And I'm seeing that in you, man. I want to affirm that in you. you know what I mean? um, prince, another principle I want to throw out there, and then Milton, if you come and say a couple words, but another principle. 99% is just showing up. 99% is just showing up. Every once in a while I'll be asked to speak at a missions conference or something like that. 
And I said, take everything you've heard at this conference and throw it out the window. Because 99% is just being present and being willing. You know, I am a white guy in a black neighborhood. And I'll tell you, the gift I have to offer is my presence. That's it, my presence. The young men that God has brought to organization, 90% of them do not have a father in their lives. 90%. I take them bowling. I take them fishing. I take them to Cubs games. take them camping. Every once in a while, a Sox game. I, I, I cheer for whoever the Sox are playing, right? And you know what is ridiculous? Their first bowling experience is with me. Their first fishing experience is with me. Their first ball game is with me. It's ridiculous. I get to take their first. You know how it is sexually, right? That first person, right? It's like you give them everything, you know. They get, they get. I get this with all these kids. The first experience. They lose their their uh, their naivety they lose their their um, ignorance about things in my presence and i'm spoiled to be able to share that with them you know how awesome is that that's the blessing of just showing up praise the lord i uh, pulled my back a little this morning i was bending down to pick up a box and uh, just snatched that thing but I'm so happy to be here this this morning, this afternoon. And one of the things about Ethereal, this young man, he has such a heart, such a heart of a servant. Everything that he's asked to do, he just gives and gives. And no matter who asks, it's go pick up those boxes, go clean, come and let me teach you this. He just gives his heart and serves. And he's on the path to great leadership. And... Uh, I actually have been working with Wyman for about five or six months now. Um, and I'm married, just celebrated 24 years, and five kids, David and Jonathan, Stephen and Sarah, and Joseph. And um, just several of my kids, when they were in elementary school, I have, have one left in elementary school, actually in high school now, but they went through the Wyman program. And uh, they're doing phenomenal. One of them is in China, speaks fluent Mandarin. Uh, my 19-year-old is in the Navy. Uh, uh, he'll be actually next week. He'll be 20, and uh, he's going on two years in the Navy. He just got married. My 18-year-old uh, is at the University of Illinois uh, in the aerospace engineering program there. And then my daughter, she's in college. And then my 15-year-old, he's just, you know, Joseph is Joseph. <laughs> and, uh, but one of the things about Mike is the authenticity. Uh, just he's real, and I, I love that about him. And uh, it, 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 it provokes me uh, to, to transparency and vulnerability to share our lives with one another, you know. And uh, I'm just so excited about what the Spirit does. Even though he's not Pentecostal, you know, I, <laughs> and charismatic tongue. I love, <laughs> I love this guy with all my heart, man, I tell you. And uh, I, I actually came by way of prison ministry. Uh, I'll be 54 in September. And 
I was raised in the church, president of the deacon board at the age of 13, superintendent of Sunday school, singing in the choir, religious and lost. Dropped out of school, dropped out of church, and got out into these streets and just started doing everything. Stopped going to church and started going to jail. Wound up with 14 convictions, and in 1980, sentenced to seven and a half years in prison. And they put me in a cell with an El Rukin gang member who had given his life to Christ. And that man began to share the gospel with me. Ten days later, March 21st, spring morning, I woke up crying like a baby in that cell, convicted of sin, asking God to forgive me and allow Jesus Christ to come into my heart and teach me what he wanted me to know and do. And uh, went back to sleep after that prayer, woke up an hour later crying, tears of joy, knew that the transaction had been made. And got up and went and made the first phone call, and I called my mama. And I said, Mama, I'm saved. And I got out in 82, uh, have been out, you know, had no interactions with the uh, law enforcement except to tell them how much I love them every opportunity I get and how much I appreciate law enforcement. And these guys are so surprised when someone tells them, thank you for your serving of our community. It just blows their minds. And, uh, and I love to see their minds blown. So, and I tell them every day, I appreciate your service. Uh, have been out uh, since 1982, and about five months ago, uh, I was working with a company, uh, and I decided to leave it alone. And I was building my own. His program is called Y Man, and I was building a because of inspiration from Mike. I went to a meeting back in I don't even know when it was, maybe eight, nine years ago with Mike and my kids. He was taking them to KAA, Kids Across America, and it required the parents to come. So I went, and Mike was, had all of these parents in a room and all of these students, maybe 100, 150 of them at Johnson School, and Mike was up sharing the vision of why men and, and about taking these kids camping. And I'm looking at this young man. My kids are going through this program, and I'm thinking only reason my kids are going was to get them out of my hair. And, and, and Mike sharing why men mission, and I'm looking and listening at Mike, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I want to do what he's doing. And the Lord had literally, this was 2001, and the Lord had spoken to my heart, that still small voice, and I heard these words in August of 2001, reach the children. And then I went and heard him reaching the children, and I thought, I have got to do what he's doing. And I started a program called Amen. Why men? Amen. He invited me to uh, one of their meetings one night and uh, a banquet, and I shared on stage. In fact, that John Spikner Award, John Spikner, whom he spoke to, and I didn't know this was going to happen, but they gave out their first John Spikner Award, that, that banquet, about two, three years ago, and I was the recipient of that award. It still hangs on my wall today in my living room. And, uh, and, and just the inspiration that comes from authenticity, from being real, you know, and being willing to invest ourselves into others. I'm so excited about it. And I, just as I end, I am so excited about what you guys are doing here. I am so impressed and blessed by the spirit of this place. And, uh, and, and I sense, you know, uh, a connection 
with you, and I know it's going to be dynamic, and I know it's going to be partnership, and I know it's going to be service and working together. And I'm so excited about the things that are about to happen with you and us together. And uh, I just praise God again for why men, Pastor Mike Trout, <laughs> Ethereal, and all of you. Keep up the good work. You're on the right track. And so with that, Brother Mike. All right, final challenge. Final challenge, and then I'll turn it over. Something has happened right. After 2,000 years, <clears throat> you love Jesus, right? Yeah. You love Jesus, right? Yeah. Something has happened right. Something happened right in discipleship by those disciples, those original disciples. So I want you to picture with me something very quickly where Jesus is in the throne. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are on the throne. And around them gathers the 12 disciples. And behind those disciples are those that they discipled, right? And those that they discipled, and those that they discipled, and somehow 2,000 years later, you get in line behind those that have invested in you. Some of us might get behind Pastor Joe, some might get behind somebody else, but someone sowed some seeds in our lives, right? Might be behind an El Rukin gang member, right? Whatever it is, we're going to get behind somebody who invested in us. So the question is, when you turn around and you look behind you, who's behind you? Who's lining up behind you? Right? That's the challenge. Who will be behind me? The chain is not going to be broken with me. Right? I'm not going to break it. I'm going to see who's going to line up behind me. We can't predict that. It could be a kind word that we said to a police officer. It could be an internship with someone who says, ah, he's not worth investing in. It could be to Pepe who, you know, may make it or may not make it. I don't know. But we sow the seeds knowing that we want somebody to line up behind us. Father, we are nobody, but you are awesome.